Hello and welcome to the Ram Gad Pod, the Realtors Association of Maui Government Affairs Director podcast. I am your host, Jason Economou, Government Affairs Director for the Realtors Association of Maui. And I am joined today by my friend and colleague, Michael Williams. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Jason. So, Michael, usually I, I tend to introduce people with their title, but I'm going to switch this up. I'm going to ask you, who are you, Michael Williams? Tell the people of the Ram Gad Pod what you do and who you are. Well, I'm a retired Oregon attorney who... Uh moved here almost six years ago now with my wife and we bought this farm up in Kula where we are right now and um, I no longer have to practice as a lawyer so I've been spending a lot of time on uh, other stuff here. All right, let's unpack that a little bit. That was, that was remarkably vague. Thank you for that. Um, it's a good jumping off point. Well, let's, um, let's start off with do you currently hold any titles with any organizations on Maui? Yeah, I'm on, um, I'm on three boards. I'm the president of Maui Tomorrow Foundation, and I'm the treasurer of Stand Up Maui, which is the successor to the old group called Face Maui, uh, a local uh, affordable housing advocacy group that's been going a long time. And then I sit on the board of the Kula Community Association, but I'm not an officer there. And for anybody that's not familiar, what is Maui Tomorrow? Maui Tomorrow um, is a uh, foundation that has, uh, this is the 30th anniversary year of the organization, and uh, they mostly uh, are known for fighting bad development and trying to promote smart development on on the island and uh, preserving the environment as much as possible. And they've been involved in many, many big issues over the years, and we're involved in a lot right now. (laughs) What what really got you involved with Maui Tomorrow? Um, I think I read something about them uh, on Facebook, and then I uh, uh, can't remember now who I met first. Uh, but one of them invited me to a board meeting, and I liked what they were doing, and so eventually they asked me to join the board, and then eventually they asked me to be president. So it's been about three and a half years, I think, since I first started working with them. And uh, Stand Up Maui, what, what is Stand Up Maui for those who aren't familiar? Stand Up Maui is a, a, another 501c3 organization based here on Maui that used to be called Face Maui. Many people in the housing business would know it as that. Stand Up Maui is a new name this year because we took over uh, an existing 501c3 organization based on Oahu that was called Housing Hawaii. And um, we still have two of their board members on our board, but we renamed the organization Stand Up Maui. And uh, our goal is to advocate for affordable housing here. Very cool. And the Kula Community Association, that one's, that one's pretty self-explanatory, but why don't you, you just give us a, a quick breakdown of sort of what you handle with the Kula Community Association. Well, I haven't really, uh, I mean, you know, I guess I got one project assigned to me, which was to uh, meet with the Director of Public Works about the intersection of uh, Kulehu Road and uh, Hanson Road, which uh, it is it's really, really backed up, and pro- it needs a 
better traffic control. And their suggestion was a roundabout. But that's really been the only specific issue I've worked on with the Kulo Community Association. They deal with all the all the issues that are of interest to anybody up here. They don't really have a, a philosophical bent other than to uh, try to figure out what the community wants about something and then go and see if they can make it happen or prevent it from happening. Mm. I mean, that's sort of, you represent the community. Right. You kind of go with what the community wants. Yeah. Now, uh, what I generally like to do with these podcasts is I like to take a big old jump back in time before we get into the things that you're currently working on and, and the things that you're currently concerned with, which beforehand, you gave me a whole list of issues that, that you've been thinking about, researching, working on. So I do want to touch on those. Um, but you mentioned that, that you're an attorney. Um, you're not just sort of a, a recovering attorney. You are a graduate from Harvard Law, right? Right. And you, you graduated with honors, right? Yes. Um, how long did you practice law for? I was a lawyer from 1978 until now. I'm still, uh, I still have my Oregon license active because I still have a few clients I'm finishing their cases for. For example, I represented about 350 women who had been injured by silicone gel breast implants um, starting in the 1980s. And then when Dow Corning filed Chapter 11 uh, in 1994, uh, all of those cases got sucked into the bankruptcy proceeding in Detroit, Michigan. And this is the final year of payout for those cases. So I have, uh, I would say, more than half of my original clients have died in the meantime because wow. of age. And I now have all their children waiting for their last round of checks that I'm trying to get them. So that, I, and I have a, that's basically what I'm uh, still doing in the law practice. Plus I'm writing a book on uh, hormone therapy and breast cancer. Uh, wow. Which has to do with the last mm, 10 years of work I did as a, as a practicing lawyer. And so you focused largely on that sort of mass, uh, I guess, maybe toxic tort or medical tort practice? Yeah, mostly pharmaceutical torts, yeah. I, I, my typical case was I would represent uh, dozens or hundreds of people injured by the, exact, the same medical device or the same drug, prescription drug. Uh, and then we sued the pharmaceutical industry and sometimes the doctors, depending on circumstances. Uh, and they were usually consolidated in the federal cases in those kind of situations are usually assigned to a single judge somewhere in the country and then all the cases in the country get transferred there. So for the last oh, eight years of my practice, I had to go to Little Rock, Arkansas several times a year. <laughs> Did you enjoy Little Rock, Arkansas? Uh, yeah, the judge was a really, a really good guy and... Uh, Little Rock is a bastion of uh, sophistication in the midst of Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been. I've never been to Arkansas. I spent years living in the South. Um, I never made my way there. It's funny. Little Rock is on the same is on the Arkansas River, uh, just like Wichita, Kansas, where I was born and raised. So it's the same river valley all the way down. So you so you grew up in Kansas. Uh huh. Um, where did you go to college? Wabash College in Crawfordsville, Indiana. What brought you to Wabash College in Crawfordsville, well, Indiana? Well, uh, there were two factors. One, one was um, I was determined to be a uh, 
a conservative economist, and they had a, a teacher there who had written several books on economics and was in the uh, you know sort of the Austrian school of libertarian economics, and so I wanted to go and study under him, and then I also got a scholarship that paid all my tuition to go there, so. That's where I went. That'll do it. That's yeah. <laughs> that's largely how I decided on where I was going yeah, to college, my, too. I mean, I couldn't afford to go. Uh, I got admitted into Harvard uh, College as an undergraduate, but I couldn't possibly afford to go there. So, <laughs> so why why a conservative uh, economist? And, and did you continue pursuing that that path even into your professional career, or, or did you just no, abandon that? No, I quickly... Uh, changed my major from economics to philosophy and, uh, and history and uh, I didn't really lose interest in the economic field I just didn't find it as interesting to me as the larger questions so my, my dad had been a conservative Republican legislator in Kansas uh, and he um, had a collection of economics books and so I would read, we, he would read Ludwig von Mises to me and, you know, uh, all that all that kind of stuff. In your younger years, um, would you have considered yourself a conservative? Yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> Did you vote Republican? Were you a Republican at one point? In high school, I don't think I got to, I don't think I ever voted Republican that I recall, but I was a, definitely in high school, I was still uh, imbued with the Republican Party. And I... Because my dad was so involved in Republican politics in Kansas, I got to meet Dwight Eisenhower a couple times. I, I knew Bob, uh, a longtime senator from Kansas, Bob Dole. I knew him before he was a senator, when he was still just in the state house, uh, and uh, you know, I met Goldwater a couple times. So it was my dad was really involved in Republican politics. Um, I I got to ask since you have such a. Um uh, first-hand view of of that party and and its changes. Um, what what moved you away from from that sort of political ideology, uh, if anything? It was their, um, uh, I guess, their blindness to the the real effects of uh, what the Republican policies were doing. I mean, you know, Nixon aligned with the the, the southern the southern racists basically and. Republican Party sort of sold its soul, I thought, to the uh, the right wing Christians, the right wing races, yeah. instead of just libertarian uh, ideas. Do you, do you kind of uh, do libertarian ideas still sort of appeal to you? Oh yeah, and I think there's, uh, I think that um, the market is is still the best mechanism for uh, handling most uh, economic transactions. You know. You just got to control it a little bit. Mm. So, so you're not a uh, a full blown free market sort of guy. You're you're a um, controlled market. Yeah, I believe that the you know uh, the public should have to pay taxes to build roads and jails and courts and you know schools and uh, you know, all the stuff that government uh, does around here. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I am. That's that's the interesting thing about libertarianism to me, which is it is a very appealing ideology. Um, it, it's sort of in small group dynamics. It seems to make sense, uh, but once you once you really blow it up and uh, and zoom out, 
the whole libertarian idea of, of just let the free markets do everything and uh, government shouldn't be collecting so much money from us and, and using it towards so many um, structures and systems, um, that gets kind of silly. And it kind of it ignores the fact that life has been sort of inherently unfair and unjust to a lot of people. Um, so, yeah. Now, now to, to jump back to your philosophy education, um, I, I know that this is sort of springing it on you since you studied um, philosophy in undergrad, which was, um, I don't mean to, to make you sound old, but some time ago. Yeah. Um, what philosophers appealed to you or what, what ideas really spoke to you? Oh, the, the, my favorite philosopher was always uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Because um, I, I actually went to graduate school in philosophy for three years, too, at Berkeley, um, straight out of college. So I was headed to become a professional philosopher for a while. But I, I found, uh, here's how I describe it. The, uh, they had a big philosophy library there at Berkeley where you could go and it was quiet and you could study and stuff filled with old philosophy books and what I found was that there would be a, some difficult philosophical question about something having to do with some you know, philosophical topic and you would see that the, the journal articles and the letters to the editor and so forth would go on until those guys all died off and then the question was never raised again it was just uh, full of little cliques t- talking about stuff that I didn't think had any relevance to the real world at all. So I dropped out. <laughs> after, <laughs> after, after committing, you got your bachelor's degree in philosophy, and then you went to grad school for three years. Yeah. You were on your way to get a PhD. Yeah. You had already committed approximately seven years to philosophy, and because of how wishy-washy the, the debate was, you just kind of you decided to move in a more... Um, uh, settled direction? Yeah, plus it, it didn't look like it was going to be a very uh, good way to make a living. <laughs> but uh, So anyway, I, I, when I dropped out of Berkeley, I actually became a propane truck uh, gas delivery guy in Montana for a while. Uh, and then I ran uh, a bunch of assembly lines in a factory in Wichita, Kansas at the Coleman Company that made Coleman coolers and jugs and camp stoves and stuff. What was that like? What, what were, how long did you do those jobs for? I hated the propane job because you stink all the time. That, they had that they have that odorizer in the gas, and it gets into your clothes and skin and everything. It's almost impossible to get rid of. Um, and when when the winter started to settle in into Montana, my wife and I decided to go back to Wichita uh, and uh, look for jobs there. So I ended up working for three years as this factory foreman. Uh, in Wichita, and it was a hard job because I had about 140 people working for me, but the turnover was like 10% a week, so I was always hiring people. Every week I had to interview people to, you know, fit in somewhere on one of the assembly lines or the you know, support stations that uh, fed the lines, and uh, I was working 12 hours a day, 6 days a week, and you know, on salary. (laughs) 10% turnover a week is, is nuts. What, what sort of, what causes 10% turnover? Is, is that normal for that sort of thing? I, no, I think it was just because the unemployment rate was low and the work was, the work was hard. I mean, you had to move fast and be good at what you did to make money. Uh, and uh, you had to show up on time and, you know, it was, 
Nice factory work. What um, what were your big takeaways from that job? What did that experience teach you? Um, I guess it taught me that the 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 better you could have managed control systems, you know, with monitoring of what uh, data points and so forth, the easier it would be to run a factory. <laughs> data points. That would yeah, you like, would you have put it in those terms back then? Probably, yeah. That's yeah. pretty forward thinking. Huh. I don't know. There was a lot. There's a lot of books on businesses and how to run factories back even back in the 1970s. You know. So you've always been um, you've always been a reader and and somebody yeah. who researches what you do. Yeah, that's kind of rare and <laughs> overall, <laughs> as far as especially I think among. Um, uh, a lot of factory workers, you don't necessarily imagine that they're they're off researching how to do their job better, but but I think that's probably an unfair assumption. Yeah. So anyway, then I got um, I got shot in an armed robbery uh, at my home in Wichita and uh, pretty badly injured, and so I couldn't I couldn't work at the factory anymore, and I got so tired of working. I got tired of Wichita and got tired of working there that when I had finally recovered, I had applied to law school. And when I got into Harvard, I decided I'd go to Harvard Law School. So I left the factory job in Wichita and moved to Harvard uh, and then moved to Oregon after that. I, you just glossed over the whole getting shot thing. What, where were you shot? I was shot in this... Uh, well, I'll try and tell this as, as short way as I can... Um, it was uh, the night before the Super Bowl, and my wife and I didn't own a TV, but I wanted to watch the Super Bowl, so I went to the local 7-Eleven and rented a TV and brought it back and was setting it up. Uh, this is, you know, the dead of winter in Wichita, and uh, there's a knock on the door, and I go and open the door, and there's two, what I thought were like high school boys, in trench coats and cowboy hats and bandanas over their noses and waving shotguns. Dressed like cowboy bandits. Yeah. Yeah. And I just slammed the door and locked it. And while I was leaning against the door, one of them fired both barrels into me and through the door. And so I had all the shot ended up in my stomach and I lost my transverse colon and a lot of my spleen. And I still have buckshot inside me anytime I have an x ray or MRI done. You know, they couldn't ever get it all out. That is nuts. But anyway, I, I was in intensive care for three weeks. They actually, the fourth night, they took my parents and my wife to the chapel because they didn't think I was going to make it through the night because of my peritonitis. And, uh, but I did, and so here I am. And that was 1974. So, uh, wow. That is that is an insane story. I am very happy that you survived that. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, let's let's move on. Let's not linger there too much. I want to I want to move on to to some more highlights. So you go to Harvard Law. Yeah. How was that? You what what age were you uh, at that point? I was twenty eight when I started, and uh, my class was the oldest average age class that Harvard had ever had. There were a lot of people fleeing the humanities <laughs> like I had and wanting to go to law school. And, uh, you know, and it was very intimidating at first because most of these kids were far better educated than I was in terms of they knew 
they knew big words and they they knew French phrases and they knew something about the law and I I, I felt like I was really out of my league there uh, for the first several months. <laughs> Perhaps. I mean, you know, to be fair, you did get into Harvard for undergrad, which is which is a task in and of itself. That's yeah. pretty impressive. I've you, always been a good test taker. You had graduate education, graduate level education, even though you didn't have a final uh, graduate degree. I did get one. Oh, you did? I, okay. When I decided to apply to law school, I wrote Berkeley and told him, because I'd only been on leave, I actually hadn't you know, withdrawn. And so I wrote them a letter and said, I'm not going to come back. Can I have a master's degree? And they said, sure. And they sent me one. So I have, a, <laughs> I have an MA from Berkeley in philosophy, signed by Ronald Reagan, no less. That he, is awesome. He was the governor of California then. So you go to Harvard Law. What was, um, what, what's your takeaway from, from that Harvard Law experience? Uh, well, I got a really good education there. There's no question that they, uh, they teach you how to think like a lawyer. Yeah. You know. Uh, which you, you need to do if you want to be successful as a lawyer. Do you think so, your um, your real world experience, your practical life experience of working in the factories and managing people, um, did that benefit you greatly, or or hinder you at all, or or did it just not really play a factor while you're at Harvard? No, I think it helps uh, any lawyer to have had real life experiences like like I had had before I went there. Yeah, I mean a lot of these kids they're they go through college in three years. They're only, you know, 19, 20 years old. Yeah. And they haven't had much life experience in anything, you know. I mean, some, most, a lot of them couldn't have, couldn't have drawn you a map of the United States. They'd never been off the East Coast. <laughs> that's, that's roughly <laughs> how I was when I went to law school. Right. <laughs> yeah. Though, I, I, the reason why I asked that question is because when I was in law school, I noticed that um, for, for some of, we called them owls. Older, wiser law students. Yeah. Um, for for some of them, it was hugely beneficial to have the the real life experience to draw from. Um, but for others, especially those who had been in leadership roles before, it was their first time in a while of being wrong or not being the person who's always right in the room. Uh-huh. Um, so so I, I had a couple of classmates that that really struggled with the fact that, especially in law, there's there's all there's there's usually. Uh, or often multiple answers that could be right given given just a, a slight tweaking of circumstances and that, yeah. that amorphous nature of how law works um, was difficult for some. So, but clearly that was not a problem for you. That was <laughs> no, it turns out I was able to uh, again take the test pretty well. That's what the secret was. I had my closest friend in law school uh, was this really really bright guy who was read the work with his hands and he worked in a machine shop the whole time we went to law school and hardly ever went to class but uh, he and I would prepare for the exams and you know everything is based on just one exam basically we hardly ever wrote papers or anything and so he and I would study for these exams together and we all we both graduated in, in a, you know magna cum laude after the three years <laughs> but he, I swear he almost never went to class he relied on my notes from the class stuff what, um, what, what practice areas or, or subject matter were you drawn to in law school? Environmental law, mostly. I founded the uh, Harvard Environmental Law Review while I was there. I was the first editor-in-chief with two other people. We were three co-editors-in-chief of that first uh, volume. 1977, I think, is when it came out. Why environmental law? Um, 
Because I, I could already see that uh, uh, the industry and government were going to do harm unless, you know. I mean, the EPA was a new thing then. Nixon created it in 74, 75. And I'm talking, I was in, you know, I started law school in the fall of 75. So, so it was really just uh, that broader awakening to the fact that the environment was important? Yeah, I think so. And you get out of law school, where do you go to practice? What do you start doing first? I went to work for uh, another Harvard Law graduate in Eugene, Oregon, who was the, one of the premier personal injury attorneys there. But the firm, my real interest coming out of law school was in local government law, believe it or not. I actually, I wrote a paper on uh, um, uh, land use planning uh, <coughs> while I was there at Harvard, and uh, I really wanted to be, uh, you know, like a city attorney. That's what. And the firm I went to work for in Eugene, they were the city attorney for. They, they were the civil attorneys for Eugene. Well, actually, they did the prosecutions too, and they and also for uh, two, four or five other uh, cities around in Oregon. And so, but it, this guy that was running the personal injury practice, he just grabbed me, and I never worked on hardly any city matters ever. And I ended up being a personal injury attorney. Did you like it? Did you? Yeah, yeah, I did. I liked it a lot. And and you just sort of um, did that eventually morph into your specialization as far as medical devices and yeah. One of the, the just about the very first case or file that I was given as a brand new lawyer was this was probably you know a foot thick, and it was a a woman who had been sterilized by the Dalcon Shield uh, intrauterine device. Dalcon Shield was. It was the medical device that finally provoked Congress into making medical devices regulated under the FDA in 1976 because they, they weren't regulated uh, hardly at all before that, and the FDA had almost no authority over them. So, so anyway, this first file, and it was like I had described earlier, the cases all get consolidated. Well, these the Dalton Shield cases were all consolidated in Wichita, Kansas. So I had an excuse to go back home while I was working on the case. And um, it involved a lot of technical medical issues to prove that the infection was caused by the IUD and not by some sexually transmitted bug, you know. And so I ended up with 300 of those cases eventually. Wow. And that's, that's, I, that's sort of, I've been doing that kind of law ever since I started, representing Hundreds of people injured by the same bad drug or device. And I usually worked on the science part of the cases because it usually was a team of lawyers that had to take them on. That's interesting. And, I mean, you don't have a science background. How, how did you take to that? Have you just always sort of been naturally inclined Yeah, I always read science? science books. And I got, I got really good grades in all my science courses in college. So, so it just kind of worked just had out. A, I've had a good knack for it, yeah. What... Um, do you have any least favorite cases that you've taken? Well, I certainly had some that, that didn't work out because it turns out the clients hadn't been uh, candid with us about some important facts, you know, and we didn't find out until pretty late into the case. And, uh, and I would never advance, uh, you know, a case that wasn't worthy. That was just... I mean, Oregon was too small a place. Your reputation was everything with the judges. So, yeah, sometimes I had cases go south on me because the clients were hiding something or trying to 
create a fact that wasn't there, you know. <laughs> what is your, your proudest moment uh, as an attorney in your legal practice? Hmm. Well, maybe finishing this book if I ever get it done, but um, uh, I would say the, the, the work I did, I mean, one, there was one time when I was in charge of presenting the scientific evidence as to whether or not uh, uh, an over-the-counter drug, uh, phenylpropanolamine or PPA, uh, caused a bunch of hemorrhagic strokes in people. And that was a, it was a big courtroom in Seattle, federal court in Seattle, but we also had seven state court judges from all over the country who had flown in, and they were all sitting up there on the bench with the federal judges. And then we were being broadcast live to a courtroom in uh, New Jersey, where another group of judges was watching, and a bunch of lawyers and stuff. And so this was, and, and one of one of the witnesses the defense called was actually live from Honolulu. So we had a, I was at one point during this hearing, I was actually cross-examining some stroke expert from who was in Honolulu and broadcasting it live to New Jersey all at the same time. Wow. And what year was this? No, that was probably uh, 2003 or four. Yeah. That's the kind of thing I did. I, I ended up def- defending the science case for the plaintiffs, typically. And I, would, I was involved in hiring our expert witnesses and getting them ready. They have to write reports, and they have to be cross-examined in a deposition, typically last two or three days. And then I would be the one to cross-examine, typically, the defense experts, too. And so that's, that's mostly what I did in these cases. I'm, you know, for anybody listening, um, I'm pretty quiet while Mike is talking because my jaw is dropped because what he's describing is pretty much um, sort of everybody's fantasy when they become a lawyer. Um, you know, this, this big meaningful stuff. Um, I say that because oftentimes as a young attorney, uh, young, younger people ask me, you know, should I go to law school? Um, and I was, I was just recently talking with a colleague of mine who's also a contemporary, and we were having this conversation that a lot of times people ask us, and we kind of have a negative view of it because we came out of law school during the recession uh, or sort of immediately after the recession, um, and the profession had changed quite a bit. Um, as, as somebody who's had a really impressive career, and I'm not just saying that to be nice. I mean, it, it really is. Um, do you have any advice for somebody who might be considering law school or, or thinking about it, or if somebody has a, has a college student in their family that's, that's thinking about it? Well, there's so many different aspects of law practice. You know, you can work for the government, you can work for a big corporation or a big nonprofit, or you can be in private practice in everything from real estate to, you know, drunk driving cases. So it's, it's, it's more learn what you like. You know, a lot of lawyers don't ever want to be inside a courtroom or have to cross-examine mm. somebody on the fly or, you know. But other lawyers just thrive at that. So it's a, it's a very diverse profession. And are you more on that, uh, that live in the courtroom side of things or are you more in that research and, and writing side of things? Well, I tried a lot of cases, uh, uh, and uh, but it's so hard, so tense, and so. I mean, you're t- you're talking sixteen-hour days typically during the trial, um, 
and a lot of pressure and economic pressure too because I was always working on a contingency fee and I was usually on these drug cases you'd, you'd spend several hundred thousand dollars on the case out of pocket for experts and travel and whatnot uh, and all of that's riding on uh, your, whether you win the trial and even if you win the trial they can still appeal and you won't get paid for years so it's a uh, it's a very uh, fraught uh, profession or niche to be in. <laughs> now, you initially got into law because you were you were really fascinated by that local government side of law. Do you? Well, I got into law. That's what I wanted to do when I got out of law school. But I got into law because I wanted to be able to work for myself. Oh, I didn't <laughs> want to work for because I'm tired of working for somebody else. And I figured if I got a law degree, I could eventually work for myself, which is what happened. Did, did you ever uh, regret not getting involved in local government stuff earlier? No, it was, it was, in Oregon it was pretty boring compared to what I was doing. <laughs> so. Now, um, so you practiced law in Oregon for decades, right? Yeah, from 70, well, 78 until we moved here uh, five and a half years ago, but I'm still practicing law in Oregon now. Yes. I still have a... My law firm is still in open, and I have a office manager who keeps the books, and I've got my paralegal uh, who helped me do all these presentations uh, in court around the country on science stuff. He still works for me. I've had him work. He's been my paralegal for 20-some years, and he was just here for two weeks uh, last month to help finish this book we're writing. And he's coming back in December for two weeks. When do you plan on having the book done? We want to have it done by the end of the year. It's ninety percent done now. It's it's you know it's it, it, it needs some polishing and we gotta update a couple chapters but And this is um just just to go back, I, I can't recall if you said it. Your your book, what's it about? It's about the menopausal hormone therapy, yes. you know, the, the estrogen and progestogen therapy that uh, a lot of menopausal women take to control their hot flashes and hope to pr- prevent heart disease and all this stuff. And um I was involved in that litigation on breast cancer cases from 2002 until um, I guess I settled the last one probably in 2015. So I did that for 13 years. And was was there a finding that there was a link between the? the oh yeah, mu- multiple times. And then the cases eventually all settled. There were 12,000 breast cancer cases that were filed, and most of them were in federal court, and most of them were in Little Rock. So. Uh, and I was appointed to the steering committee of the, what, what happens in these huge cases is that the judge in charge of the federal cases appoints uh, a 7 to 11 member steering committee of the main lawyers involved and then it's their job to decide who's going to depose this person and who's going to read these documents and, you know, who's going to hire these experts and all that stuff and, and is this therapy still in use even though it's, it's, yeah. there's a link? Yeah, that's what the book is about, because the science is still wrong. The, the conventional wisdom is still uninformed. It's really shocking, actually. The, I mean, the, the main um, professional organization of menopausal hormone therapy doctors is the North American Menopause Society, and their guidelines still don't recognize the actual uh, data about which, which uh, version, which, which forms of it are safe and which aren't. And that's what the book's about. And so why is, why is this um, ostensibly dangerous therapy still in use if, if there's data and science to, to back it up? 
you know, it's a, it's a hard question because there are quite a few doctors that have written major papers that take the position our book does, which is that natural progesterone is safe and the synthetic imitations are not. Uh, but um, the conventional wisdom is still that they're all the same. And, uh, it doesn't matter whether it's the natural progesterone that uh, both men and women have in their bodies or these synthetic uh, imitations of it that the drug companies develop, first for birth control pills and then for menopausal hormone therapy. Wow. Do you, um, do you have a publisher? Or are you self-publishing? We haven't. Uh, we've got a couple uh, we've talked to, but we... We're gonna. We'll get one. The, my co-author is a major uh, breast cancer researcher uh, from uh, Australia. I should show you. I I actually got. I published in the in the in Nature reviews uh, as a co-author with him of a paper on this subject already myself. Yeah, I'm a published uh, you know uh, expert in the in this field. I, w- I would love to see it. My my wife in particular, she, she's been reading a lot of books about how sort of um, the conventional medical establishment is um, not quite being honest or, or acting in good faith in, in a lot of issues, especially when it comes to women's health uh, and reproductive health yeah. in particular. Um, you know, she was telling me about um, when they were looking into male birth control how they had looked at, at sort of 20 different effects and, and the impacts on the body, and, and um, they had taken so much care to make sure that the, the male test subjects weren't harmed at all. And then the, the same records as far as when they were researching female birth control methods, um, there's, there's far less care or concern as far as the, yeah. the subjects and, and what the results bear out. Most of my clients over the years were women because uh, they definitely got hurt a lot more by bad drugs and devices than men did, for some of the reasons you're talking about, that the, the research was only on men. Yeah. That's wild. I mean, thank you for, for doing that work. <laughs> that's, that's pretty great that somebody's doing it. Um, man. Yeah, let me know if, if there's any way I can help. Um, I guess getting back on, on topic... Um, you moved to, to Maui just about five and a half years ago, you said. Right. Uh, but you, you've been coming and going pretty frequently. Yeah. The first time I came here was in 1984, and it was actually on, a, on legal business. Um, I was still in Eugene at the time working for this uh, Art, Art Johnson, who was the, my mentor in Oregon. Uh, he's, he also, he's the other Harvard guy that hired me and made me become a personal injury lawyer. We had obtained a $2 million judgment against uh, a really bad guy um, named Snake Brooks. <laughs> His name was Snake. He had, uh, long story short, he had shot and killed a sheriff's officer in Eugene, and we, represent, we were hired by his daughters and his ex-wife, I mean, and his widow, and we sued Snake Brooks who by then was in prison in Oregon, and we got a default. Snake didn't show up for trial. <laughs> but we got a $2 million judgment against him, and then we heard that he had got one of He had all these uh, girlfriends, and uh, we had heard that he had got one of his girlfriends to give him a piece of property near Hana. And we thought we might be able to collect some of the money from that property. So I was sent over here to hire a Maui lawyer to help us find out if we could collect anything. 
and that was so I came to I came to Maui and I was wearing a coat and tie you know, <laughs> <laughs> to go meet. I don't remember the guy's name now that that we talked to, but he quickly figured out that Brooks didn't really have any interest in the property that we could collect on and uh, wasn't going to go anywhere. But that was enough to to get you coming back. Yeah, and then I was. Um, I had one other legal case uh, where I had depositions in Honolulu a few years later, but um, it was mainly my uh, my wife at the time was just just loved uh, Hawaii, and so we started coming over here about twice a year, starting in like 1988, um, and eventually I ended up buying a timeshare in, at in Kanapali uh, in 2006. So I actually owned property here. Uh, what now 13 years but we I was only here like four weeks a year until we decided to buy this place move here when did you um, when did you first start getting involved in in local politics and local policy Um, you know it's hard to remember exactly how quickly that happened but um, Let's see, we got here, uh, we, we didn't really start living here full-time until the fall of 2015. And I was uh, only slightly involved in that election cycle in 2016. Uh, but that's when I was starting to meet the Maui Tomorrow board members and some of the, uh, uh, what was it, what did they call them, the Ohana, can- the Ohana people, you know. Yeah, the Ohana Coalition. Yeah. Um, and I just gradually got more and more involved in that. And uh, I remember I met Kelly King the first time at a at a, a fundraising dinner for the farm. That's that uh, uh, women's uh, shelter operation down in on Baldwin Avenue, or just off Baldwin Avenue, uh, between uh, Makawa and Paia. It's a it's a it's a very successful. Uh, Anyway, my wife and I went to the fundraising dinner to give money, and I got to meet Kelly King that way. And so then she started asking me to come to her kitchen cabinet meetings, and you know, after that, it was just I really delved into it. What are, what are the kitchen cabinet meetings? Kelly uh, has a group of about 12, 12 to fourteen advisors that she meets with every month or two. Uh, we used to meet in her kitchen at her house. <laughs> Till she became council chair, and now we meet in the, you know, seventh floor uh, conference room. But it's a diverse group of people from all over Maui with different interests, and she just takes soundings from us and stuff. I think that I don't know if the other council members have anything like that, but um, not that I'm aware of. But I think it'd be good for them all to do it. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty um, pretty great idea. Uh, who are who are some of the um, folks or, or organizations? that are kind of represented in the kitchen cabinet? Well, there's a, a woman from the Ma'alai Community Association who's been active in, in Ma'alai politics a long time and used to be on the county council. Dick Mayer is part of it. Um, uh, uh, Tina Wildberger comes sometimes. Uh, Ray Phillips. You, you know Ray, he's a developer. He's working on a... 100% affordable housing project right now in Kihei. And met Ray, but, yeah. but I, I can't say that I know him. Yeah. And uh, the president of the Maui Democratic Party is part of the group. Um, you know, it's Lucien, 
Danae, also on the Maui Tomorrow board with me. She's part of the group. So it's, a, you know. It's a good group. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> I like it. So um, you've been involved in, in local and county politics, not for a super long time on Maui, but um, you have helped the county in a lot of ways. So, so aside from the, the kitchen cabinet, um, you are on the Cost of Government Commission, right? Yes, I am. Um, what is the Cost of Government Commission? It's, a, it's a, a body created by the charter, the county charter, nine members. Uh, they serve four to five-year terms and appointed by the mayor, um, but with the consent of the council. And their charge is to investigate anything in the county that uh, might need policy improvement or uh, is wasting money, you know. That's a pretty broad charge. Very broad. What what do you, what are some things that you either have examined or, or hope to examine with? with well, the, the one the one project I'm working on now, and I've already written one report about, is the enforcement of the short-term mental laws. Mm. Uh, the uh, commission voted to create a temporary investigation group to look into that uh, two meetings ago, and I'm one of the two commissioners looking at that. And we've already written one report, and we're going to work write some more what what did you think of um so so that third party that we contracted with to yeah. to see what the full extent of the short-term rental impact was they came back with their report on the number or um you know estimated number yeah. of illegal short-term rentals and i think it was somewhere around 204 that they were able to identify that's right um do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, you know, I think yeah, they, they have a very limited ability to look. Um, let me explain. Um, they only look at U.S. websites, um, and oh. uh, there's a lot of uh, short-term rentals here that are uh, sort of specific to other countries, Canada, Sweden, Russia, China, and those all have their own ad systems that these guys can't look at. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, then there are networks of, like, the wedding uh, businesses here and some of the fishing tour businesses they have informal networks of uh, illegal short term rentals that don't get advertised because they know who to call when they're going to have a wedding you know and uh, so there's and there's also just a lot of word, word of mouth if they've been around a while we used to have this friend that rent a sort of under the radar fishing boat that would take you out to look at the whales he never advertised. <laughs> and I, there's a lot of people in the houses that uh, I think do that too. So we don't really know how many there are uh, for sure. I suspect it's uh, somewhere over a thousand actually that are really operating. But, but, you know, it's, and there's ways to find out. For example, there's one of the things that the county can't do, but some other counties do, is this, it's called a sting operation where you, because a lot of the platforms won't let you know exactly where the house is or who the owner is until you've actually paid for a reservation. Mm. And the county doesn't have authority or a credit card to make reservations. So, and they haven't let lodging revs do that either. So, but I think if they set up such a sting operation, they might, they might catch some more people. Uh, you know. Because if, if you don't know the address, you can't. You, they can't tell from their screen process whether yeah. it's illegal or legal. And Maui has so many legal short-term rentals that um, it, it, it took a long time for them to 
put all those aside in the computer, you know. So they yeah, because there were the, that was one of the the big issues with the um, the count. They they had this really high estimation, and it was largely because of repeated um, advertisements. Yeah, ninety five percent of the ads, and there's thousands of them, are for legal short term rentals. Here. Yeah, and only about five percent are for illegal ones. Yeah, that's I mean that's interesting. The the um, the notion that there are platforms for other countries that, that we just couldn't access or, or I haven't see. figured out how to do it yet anyway. Yeah. So regarding enforcement, what, what's your what's your solution and, and your your end goal? Well, the end goal I think is to make it uh, pretty risky to run a short term rental. The fines are going up finally. Uh, the you know the the people passed the charter amendment last November to increase. The initial fine to twenty thousand dollars for the first day, and then ten thousand dollars a day thereafter. It, right? It, it, I mean, even today, it's still a thousand dollars a day is the yeah. max. And a lot of there's been short-term rentals that just pay that; they don't care. There's no criminal penalties to it. County can't make them stop. All they can do is fine them under the current law. So, um, but there's a, a bill to in, codify that charter amendment that's working. As, it got out of committee last month last week, and um, it's going to be on the council's agenda this Friday for the first reading, and then it has to go through the next council meeting, and then it will become law finally. Mm. Um, And so, and I think we should be publicizing um, the the fact that the fines are going up and that the enforcement efforts are, they've hired two more people to try to do enforcement and so forth, but um, they also need to loosen the proof required Right now, the only proof they use to get somebody who's operating illegally is an ad. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I frankly think neighbors, if you've got repeated shots of uh, rental automobiles <laughs> at some place, that ought to be enough to trigger a notice of warning letter and uh, make the property owner come and explain whether they're, it's all just a bunch of cousins or what's, what's going on. You know, I... <laughs> I, I kind of agree with you. And, and overall, I, I do agree with you that the fines should go up. But I do have a concern um, with, with the fining process. And it's not necessarily the amount of the fines. It's with the liability. Um, my, when I was practicing law, I largely focused on landlord-tenant. And one of the, the common issues that we had was tenants would be advertising uh, unpermitted uh, and illegal short-term rentals. Yeah. Um, you know, my advice to my clients was always, you know, hey, you need to, to send them a, a letter saying that they're evicted if they don't cure this, this defect, this violation of the lease in 10 right. days. Um, oftentimes, that, that would work out. They would say that they're going to take down the ads. We keep on checking. They take down yeah. the ads. We don't file for, for summary possession. Um, what I recently learned of was, was there are cases that, that have gone up for appeal um, where somebody has received the notice of violation, um, they've talked to their tenant, they found out that the, the tenant had posted an ad, um, they threatened an eviction, they put it in the lease explicitly stating no Airbnb, no short-term rentals at all. Um, six months, a year later, the tenant puts up another ad, the county sees it, the property owner is stuck paying the the fine uh, because they didn't they didn't catch that other ad before the county yeah. did and and the fact that they had advertised a second time after the notice of violation that was enough 
to get them held liable. Sounds for. like they need to get a bigger deposit from their tenants. I mean, we're we're limited with the um, that that's actually a great idea. I I mean, but but by the landlord tenant code, you're limited to the number that you can charge for a deposit. Well, and then, uh, yeah, maybe that needs to change if this is a big problem. But uh, the notice of warning letter gives you seven days to fix it without any fine. Yeah. So you know, it's not like you just automatically get fined if your tenant goes wacky on you. But no, but if the if the tenant stays wacky, I yeah, mean, yeah, so well, so you right. run into it where um, now a landlord who's providing housing during a housing crisis needs to decide if they're going to keep their tenant or or discharge them, you know, evict them. Um, if the tenant does not, if the landlord decides that the tenant is too much of a risk. I, I think and I worry that there's going to be a, um, a skepticism and, and a chilling effect on, on that landlord, that they might not be so inclined to, to rent out their Ohana again if they've had to potentially pay a $20,000 fine, or if they have had to pay a $20,000 fine. Well, uh, hopefully we're going to give them another incentive to do it because uh, intertwined with the short-term rental problem is uh, creating a property tax incentive for landlords to rent long-term to people. And so if I have my way, uh, the, the guy you're talking about would actually get a big property tax break if he does rent his Ohana out to somebody long-term. What, what are your thoughts on, because you've talked to me about this before, and I like it. I agree with you. I, I, think, I, think, um, I think there should be tax incentives for, for long-term landlords. What do you see that looking like? Well, we're going to find out uh, what the council thinks uh, Thursday because the council uh, has a temporary investigation group that's issuing its first report on Thursday at the uh, budget committee meeting. There won't be any deliberation or, or action on it. It's just going to be a presentation of what they've come up with. But I know that one of the things they were looking at was a, uh, a tax exemption uh, for long-term landlords which we've never had before. Mm. So it will give you a property tax break if you're renting to, and an even bigger property tax break if you're renting to someone at an affordable rate that we're going to define somehow. Can, can you tell us um, anything more about what that structure might look like or what that plan might look like? or, or you want Well, to it's just um, the, uh, Hawaii County now, on well, the Big Island, uh, for several years they've had a... Um, uh, affordable rental exemption for landlords there who rent long term and they have to fill out a form once a year says here's my tenant here's my rent I swear this is all true and so forth and then they get a big property tax break and I talked to the real property uh, division head there a few months ago and uh, she told me that that system works pretty well that they haven't had too many problems administering it and so I think here what what we're going to end up doing is Vancouver BC as this great program where they send a letter out each year to all property owners that have a dwelling of any kind and then you're asked to check boxes you're an owner and you live in it okay just we have our owner you know our owner occupant system already which requires you to register and so forth here fill out a form um uh do you rent long term to a local if so tell us who it is and you know show us the lease um or is the is the property just vacant and uh, they have to choose one of those three. But the vacant homes get a huge uh, property tax increase. And, uh, and I think that's, that's the system I think we should go to here, too. 
Why do you think vacant homes should pay higher taxes? Because that's where the wealth is. And the only, uh, the, the county, under the state constitution, the county only really has one big power to tax. There's no income tax, no sales tax. All they got is the property tax. And property is just wealth. I mean, that's, that's, that's all it is. And right now, if you're an investor wanting to diversify your portfolio into real estate, um, Maui real estate is very attractive because the property tax rates here are lower than almost anywhere else in the world. Mm. Um, and um, so I don't know why we shouldn't charge a lot more in property taxes to people that are just parking their money here, parking their wealth here, because we obviously need more money to build roads and build houses and so forth. So where are we going to get it? Well, we've got to get it from the wealthy people, but especially the ones that don't live here. <laughs> oh. But why? I mean, you know, it's... Um, because that's where the money is. What, really what I'm saying <laughs> is um, you, you put a specification between dwellings um, and land. So, so if somebody has vacant land, do you, do you imagine that, that they should pay an increased rate for taxes? Or is it, is it just the specific dwellings? We're just talking about dwellings in this, what I'm talking about now. The taxes on vacant land is... Um, you know, we, we give a big tax break to uh, ag land here, um, uh, although it's supposed to be actively farmed to get the full tax break. Um, and I, I'm not I'm not uh, advocating that we need to start taxing vacant land more. The land's not actually worth, you know, all of Mahipono's land worth $261 million. Well, that's not a lot of taxes if you start and think what the rate is. 41,000 acres times six bucks an acre. It's only two and a half million dollars. It's not a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my um, there is that part of me that that is concerned with. Um, it's that libertarian part of me that that part that says, "Well, it's my land." You know, if I want to have an empty house, then why can't I have an empty house? If I want to, telling you you can't have one, we're just asking you to pay a fair share of the upkeep we need to run the island. You know. Mm. If I keep it vacant, aren't I having less of an impact on the island because I'm I'm inviting it's less not a residents? Matter of to impact. Well, you're not making it available. We need housing, and you got one, and you won't let us use it. I mean, that's one thing, okay? But uh, we're, we're not making you use it. We're just saying that you need to pay more because we need the money. Mm. I'm. I'm. <laughs> that's what property tax is for. I'm more inclined <laughs> to to the incentivization structure, the, the incentive of a tax benefit for housing people as opposed to an increase in taxes um, for not housing people. That's, that's my, my one, um, I, I guess, the big snag for me in, in that structure of, of a vacant, uh, vacant property tax. Um, we can disagree on, on certain specifics, though. Well, it gives them an incentive to put it on the rental market they're going to get a big break on their taxes if they do that. There is that. I like that. <laughs> you should run for office because no. that was great spin. It's I'm not penalizing people for not renting out the property. I'm giving them an incentive, an extra incentive. That's right. Uh, that they won't have to pay the extra taxes. <laughs> no, but I, I like that idea. What what other affordable housing or, or attainable housing um Ideas have you been working on? Well, I think that after looking at this pretty hard for the last couple of years, 
I'm convinced that, that what the county needs is a master comprehensive plan. And by that, I mean literally a map that shows where, if we need 9,000 more houses that aren't in the works already, where are they going to go exactly? What, you know, where are you going to build the roads? Where are you going to build the sewers and the water lines? And where are you going to have school sites? And where are you going to have parks? And all of that needs to be planned out now. And it needs to be consistent with the existing community plans. Um, and then um, you schedule it out over a series of years and figure out uh, what gets built in what year and then how you're going to finance each year's worth of uh, construction. And, you know, that's what we need. And I have written a request for proposal um, that is going through Stand Up Maui now to get uh, massaged by the other people that have been working on this a long time. And um, I think the council, because the mayor obviously did, he, he didn't come up with a plan. I mean, he... He, he told us he was going to have a plan, uh, but he didn't have a plan at all. He had no map, no schedule, no nothing, you know, just yeah. some vague policy ideas. And so um, the council needs to buy a plan. There's no one here that can do it. I mean, there may be people on Maui that can do it, but they're not working for the county. You know, I think that's actually pretty much in line with what uh, Housing and Human Concerns said when they, yeah, yeah, when they I think presented they their plan, about this, where yeah. it's kind of everybody's in their, their own silos or, or there are all these different factors that they don't have unilateral right. control over or even knowledge of. Right. Um, and so, so, yeah, I guess buying a plan. Um, now, a couple years back, wasn't there, there two like strategic housing plans that we contracted for with, I think it was SMS? Yeah. That the county did. What's wrong with those? Well, they, um, I mean, first of all, they didn't propose any financing mechanisms for it. They they did identify four or five parcels that the county owned that they thought should have feasibility studies done to see if the county could build houses there. Um, turns out those feasibility studies have been done, and the answer is no, they're not good sites. And so um, they were, one of the, documents they wrote was a, just a policy analysis. It didn't tell us anything we didn't already know about the shortcomings of uh, uh, you know, uh, inclusionary zoning um, and um, the need you have to subsidize. For, for, the, for the people that are making 80% or below of uh, area median income, I think they just about have to be subsidized by the county or the state or the feds yeah. are working together. You're not going to, private developers just can't make money providing housing at that level of, of uh, you know, rent or purchase. So um, that's why the county needs a plan, and they don't have anybody in there now to do it. Linked to this is we also need to create a housing department because that's totally separate from all the human concerns issues that they deal with and uh, focuses only on creating affordable housing. And that will take a charter amendment, but that's in the works uh, for, this, for next year's ballot. Um, then we also need to create a housing authority, which is a community development corporation that is eligible to accept grants, not only from federal or state governments, but from uh, you know, charities and philanthropists who want to uh, help fund housing. The, the county really can't do that, and so uh, we need a housing authority also. The the housing committee held a hearing on this just last month and uh, had a couple of uh, experts in to talk about that. But if, if we create a housing department 
on next year's uh, ballot in November, it will be up and running in January, uh, a little over a year from now, and it's going to take about a year to do this comprehensive plan. So the idea would be get the comprehensive plan done by year end next year and be ready for the new housing department to take off and run with. Basically just set up this new housing authority to, to be able to, to do everything. Yeah, yeah, that too, right. Yeah. The housing authority is different from the housing department. Yeah. What, how likely do you think this is? Do you, do, you see, do you see this thing happening? Yeah, I think so. I think the count, I think that the the county council is knows it needs a plan. Now, <laughs> thought now, it was going to get one, but it didn't. This isn't like a, a super novel idea. This has been floated before, right? Yeah, but our, Eric Howell was against uh, this kind of planning, and so far we haven't seen evidence that Mike Victorino wants to do it either. Mm. You know, Wait, do. Do you want to share any thoughts on, on the Victorino administration and the interplay between the county council? No, I don't. Uh, you know, I haven't had a whole lot to do with the mayor's office. He doesn't seem to be proposing anything uh, in the area of property tax reform or in the area of uh, short-term rental enforcement or in the area of uh, uh, affordable housing plans. You know, I mean, nothing, nothing significant. So it's not like he's in the way. I think he's just, uh, he's, he's not interested in those things for some reason. Mm. Yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from. I, I can see why you're saying that. That's, um, you know, what, um, let, let's, let's redirect. So, so I mentioned the cost of government commission. What other uh, commissions, working groups, temporary investigative groups have, have you been involved with? Well, the rest of it is all just working with the council on various issues, mostly. Yeah. So, so affordable housing, you got great ideas. Um, I'm, I'm, I was kind of on the fence when it came to the the housing commission, um, but after talking with Housing and Human Concerns and and them really highlighting the fact that they're they're sort of divided in you know the the stru- the pieces that they need in order to get into the housing development game. Um, are missing from their department. So it makes sense create something that can do that job. Right. Um, this move of the county, it seems traditionally the county has avoided development because it costs more money when the county does stuff. I think that was that was one of the things that Ricky Hokama had pointed out during a council meeting. Um, do you have a concern about the county's ability to to do construction and development with economic efficiency? Well, the way I envision it is the county let's say we have several parcels each are going to have 200 homes on them you know or mostly rental units or whatever the county should you know one they need to get control of the land and they need to have their infrastructure plan in place to know what roads and sewers and water lines and stuff they got to build for that but they should uh, do requests for proposals to non-profit or profit developers who can actually build the houses I don't think the county should be in the construction business, other than, you know, sort of supervising at the highest level. Okay, that makes sense. I'm yeah. more comfortable with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't want county employees out there building houses. Good. That's good. That's <laughs> we, uh, now, now, when I, when I asked you to, to describe Maui tomorrow, one of the, the things that you said was that they sort of uh, stand up against bad development. Right. Um, what do you what do you see as good development? 
what what sort of development projects um, when it comes to what's available, how it's financed, where it is, um, what would you like to see more of? Well, more affordable housing. I think that the, I don't think that we have much of a shortage of uh, market rate housing here, frankly, uh, but. Uh, we definitely got to have more affordable housing, and we need a plan to do it. So, I mean, that's a, how many jobs is that going to create if we build 9,000 houses over the next six years, you know, plus all the roads and sewers and, you know, wastewater plants and all that stuff we have to do. Where do you want to see them? Where? Yeah. Well, I think uh, ideally you'd have sort of a Waikapu country town-like thing uh, – Above Kaanapali and maybe also above Kapalua and somewhere above uh, Wailea uh, or uh, in Kihei, um, where you'd have a large plan development that with a mix of housing types and walkable business centers that people can go to and parks and schools and everything. That's what needs to happen, I mm. think. Um, and that's why we need this plan to do it. The community plans that are in place now set aside enough land to build these houses. Yeah. But the county just has never had anybody try to do it. The the fact that we're sort of at the start of the the new community plan process. Yeah. Uh, and that we're we're kind of at least a few years away from having all of the community plans yeah. settled. Um do you think that that'll hinder or, or slow down the the development ideas and, and a housing authority idea that that's in the works? Well, I think the the West Maui community plan is going to be done in time. Uh, yeah, to, for the for the people writing the comprehensive plan to use um, the uh, South Maui community plan. I know Kelly King is trying to push planning to get that started right now. They can do two at once. They've, yeah. they've historically only done one plan at a time. There's no reason for that. They should do all of them at once. You know, just hire more people if they have to. Um, but I think that you part of the comprehensive plan would be a series of community meetings in South Maui to try to find out where people want affordable housing uh, to the extent we don't already know from the existing community plan and Maui Island plan mm. but and you know and the same is, would, would be true of uh, uh, the highly Miley Paia area where you may also want to put some affordable housing when you um, consider the the infrastructure development in particularly the water infrastructure uh, for for new development of, of workforce and affordable housing um, who do you see paying for that the county yeah, and I think you do, do those long-term capital uh, investments like building more wastewater treatment facilities or, or more wastewater recycling capacity, um, building the roads, you know, uh, getting the water there. Uh, I think all of that can be done with bonding. The county has a great bonding rating. Yeah. And it can borrow money at like 2% or something. And if you... Suppose that we raise taxes enough on these second homes, the wealthy second homes, to raise an extra $20 million a year of new revenue. I think that's very doable if we just put the property tax rate at the world market rate of 3 or 4%. You know, it would be 30 or $40 a thousand for those homes. Um, and you can also segregate them in tiers so that the higher the value of the home, the more they pay too. Mm. Uh, but in any event, say we could raise $20 million a year that way. Well, if you're going to borrow 30 years' worth of bonds for that, you can probably borrow $580 million or so 
to spend right now on whatever you need and still pay it off for that $20 million a year in extra revenue. So you, you can leverage uh, a property tax increase with bonding capacity uh, hugely. Do you think that, um, well, let me, let me phrase it this way. Do concerns over a potential economic downturn uh, and, and ultimately recession, uh, does that, that give you pause? For, for this well, the idea nice thing about property is it can't move. They can't take their property away from us. You know, that's the property taxes have a lot of advantages. They, they're clumsy in some ways, but they uh, they can't take their property away. So we're going to be able to collect property taxes. You know, it would have to be an awfully severe downturn not to be able to collect property taxes. Um, but if we're building all those homes, we're going to have a local stimulus going on here anyway. Do you get concerned at all with, um, I guess, legal liability that the the county might be facing? You know, you and I first for what? Well, you and I first met when we were talking about the um, that real property tax case um, with with the condos and whatnot. Yeah, and that that was a big concern then that the county might be on the hook to to pay back um, significant sums of tax money that they they collected. That's right. Um, and and shouldn't have. Um, the other concern that I have um, is with this injection well case. There, there is a good chance that the county is going to have to pay lots of money to either um, handle the permitting uh, or to, to build ocean outfalls. There's going to be an increase in the, the water recycle and reuse program regardless. Um, and you know, also, as far as potential fines go, um, the, the quick math that you know, that back of the envelope math that I saw puts the potential fines for the case uh, upwards of $1.8 billion for the county. Well, I think that's totally bogus scare tactics. I mean, the, the state has never fined anybody for uh, uh, one of these permits, and it has a bunch of them around the, around the state already. The state runs the federal permit program, not the feds. And um, the, basically, the, the, you get a permit to pollute. It, the, the permit doesn't say you can't do it. It just says if you're going to do it, then you better have this mitigation stuff in place and you better be building your wastewater recycling. The county already has committed 20 or $30 million to expansion of the wastewater recycling um, systems, both in uh, uh, West Maui and South Maui, and they've got plans drawn up to do the same thing in the Kahului plant and, and, and run uh, not potable water, but uh, R1 water up to the Mahipono lands, you know, from new settling ponds above that wastewater facility. So, I, I, I mean, I, I don't think settling this case uh, is going to cost the county any money. Because mm. they got to do it anyway. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I hope you're right. I, I just, <laughs> I, I, I kind of disagree with you, but, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's an optimistic view, and I, I absolutely hope you're right. Um, so so yeah. let's just go with that. I'm I'm a, I guess maybe a little more cynical. Um, I, I worry about um, the because I, I worry about the impact of even the potential cost of things. Um, you know, sort of the the way that that the fear of of fines and the fear of having to spend money on on other things um, has a chilling effect on our our freedom to use money for for more beneficial purposes. Um, you know, so, so that's my concern with, with the money and, and also, you know, I got a whole slew of other things with the, uh, 
that injection well case, but I honestly don't want to talk about it anymore. So, <laughs> so we're going to jump off of that subject because um, I'm getting sick of that topic. Um, so real property tax form, um, man, you, you brought up a whole bunch of charter amendments that, that you wanted to talk about. Um, including professional manager, housing department. We talked about that. Um, renewing the affordable housing fund. What do you mean by that? Well, the, the charter provides for, the, it creates the affordable housing fund and says that 2% of all property tax revenues will be set aside into that fund every year automatically, and then they can't ever be spent on anything else. And so up until this year, it had accumulated like $20 million in it, but it expires uh, at the end of next year. Uh, unless it's renewed. So we, we literally, the affordable housing fund will cease to exist unless we renew it with a new charter amendment. So I don't think it's going to be controversial. Yeah, the controversy we... will be over whether, whether we increase the set aside to 3% or 4% instead of 2%, I think. But, uh, but I, I don't think anybody wants not to extend the life of the affordable housing fund. So that, but that has to be a charter amendment. So. There you go. Yeah. That's, well, I think we can, uh, we can work together on that one. Um, creating an office on climate change. Yeah, uh, Honolulu has done that, and um, um, uh, it seems to be well-received. I don't know a lot of the details about that, but I know Shane Sinensi is very interested in, in doing that and is probably going to get a uh, uh, charter amendment uh, through his committee eventually that will then go to the council sometime in the next few months about doing that when it comes to climate change first off did you read that oahu resilience report that their office of uh climate change came up with it was it was referenced a lot at the hsac conference no i haven't read it it's it's actually worth a read there's there's a lot of um interesting ideas that i think you would have good opinions on i, th I think you would find it enlightening um they they give like something like 120 different uh resiliency strategy points um i wrote up a summary for for some of our members that like takes this 120 page report and down to like eight pages i'll send you that just as a as a little i mean appetizer. I could, resiliency what we're i mean the biggest problems we got here i think is that we we need to be growing a whole lot more of our own food yes uh which is a lot but and we it's it's happening you know but we'll, it's slow um we need to make sure we can survive a major hurricane with uh power and I think we need to you know underground a lot more electrical lines probably or at least have a plan to do so over time um, we need to have emergency stores around so people we, we could live for I mean if the uh, harbor at Honolulu got wiped out by a mm. category 5 storm uh, we might not get shipments for a while you know and so that those are the kind of climate sort of major issues that I see Maui needs to be preparing for sea level rise is happening but it's going to be slow and steady <laughs> yeah but in in regards to sea level rise um what are your your thoughts as far as sea level rise mitigation versus managed retreat um you know where do you think we should be focusing our efforts i think that um th this is an idea that uh the executive director of maui tomorrow came up with and has already pushed at the legislature a little bit in the last session and that is you, you have the state sort of insure uh, private property owners who are going to have to move their, uh, their property because, you know, you, you, you don't want to let them build revetments or, or, you know, 
walls because it just pushes the problem down to both sides of it and you want to let the beaches m- gradually move in but that means a lot of people are going to have to give up their uh, homes or their businesses or whatever but I think that you can work out a way that the, the state finances them to go get a second place get some other place to live or some other place to have their business um, and sort of spread that spread that cost of that uh, around to everybody not just you know make it be paid just by the the property, property owner that's in the way, you know? but and it would encourage them to get out sooner, before the damage is done or before the political pressure rises to build those revetments and stuff. So, so are you kind of thinking that that the state will almost like buy up the properties that are that are closer to the shore? Yeah, and, essentially. So it's almost like a like a taking in in a well, way. Well, but you're going to give them a replacement property. Yeah, is the idea, you know. Man, I worry about the cost of that. That sounds expensive. That well, sounds super expensive. Uh, otherwise, you just have to let it fall on the individual property owners. In which case, that we're we're I guess still sort of back at square one because technically it, it becomes the property of the state once once the sea level. Yeah, as, it, as the beaches move up, that's right. And um, and then would would a taking be triggered? Then would the state have to pay for for that land? No, it's not, that's God taking. That's God taking. <laughs> that's an act of God. So hopefully they have flood insurance. Um, yeah. So what what do you think? Okay, that's I, not an urgent problem. It's it's not a, well. I mean. We well, don't it's a, know. It's, it's, it's a real problem. But it's it a real problem. It's, it doesn't have to be solved this year, you know. No, but but within, I mean, there's there's some scary estimations. I am I am a legit climate change believer. Like I yeah, yeah. I don't I don't think there's any any doubts that that that's real. I don't think there's any real argument that sea level rise isn't happening. Um, and in fact, you know the the estimates. What is it like three feet by the year? That's the low estimate yeah. is three feet by twenty. It's probably going to rise faster than they've been predicting. But some folks are even saying like up to ten to twelve feet is the the potential level of sea level rise by the year twenty one hundred that that we're That's looking right. at. Um, you know, I, I kind of I, I can get behind your idea of the the state. Um, you know, paying for the properties, helping people move. You know, find property further inland that, that they can occupy, get their businesses up and running. That's great. It's going to be super expensive, but we can figure that one out later. Um, my second big concern is, what do we do with the structures that are left behind on the shoreline? Well, you know, some of them you can just lop off the bottom floor and put them on stilts and let the water go underneath them for a while. I mean, that's, that's what a lot of cities do. Yeah. I, you know, it's going to depend, obviously, on Structure by structure. Yeah. Structure by... <laughs> See, that's, that's my... Um, I, I guess that's the heart of my, my big economic concern. It's those, those scary costs that we have down the line. And maybe that's... Maybe I'm, um, I'm a little too sensitive, a little too easily frightened by those, those down the line costs. Um, well, well anybody that owns oceanfront property now that they think is at risk, you know, maybe they should uh, sell it. Maybe. That's <laughs> going on in my neighborhood. I live in uh, I live in Pacacalo, so, so yeah. you're seeing you're seeing a lot of folks. Um, they can't handle the the upkeep just being close to the ocean because of all the. I sea mean, water. it's it's happening in in all the coastal cities, uh, you know, especially in Florida. But the real estate prices are going to reflect the 
the risk of flooding and the uh, the risk that uh, the ocean is going to under undermine your foundation. Yeah. And so the property values are gradually adjusting to that. I mean, that's one way the market will help ameliorate all this is because the the market, uh, both for insurance and for real estate, will uh, help people decide when to move. Yeah, that's true. I am, um, man, markets. We'll see how the housing market works. <laughs> um, one of the one of the, the things that that you also mentioned your your email to me was improving the council's calendar. Yeah. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, uh, the main thing is to let them take office in the first uh, business day of December instead of January, so that uh, that lame duck period that now lasts from November eighth or whatever until the until January second is compressed by you know down to just three weeks in November basically. Hawaii County already does that, um, and then that would let the county. They get all organized in the first two weeks of December, and then everybody can take the holidays off. Uh, and they come back, you know, like on January 6th, they can have three weeks off, everybody in the county. Uh, after the new council is already, in the new mayor, if it's a mayor year, already in place and organized for two weeks. So that's, that's one of the things. The other thing is, and this is Kelly King's idea, is right now the charter requires the council to meet two times every month. And um, if we change that to require that the council meet 22 times a year, but allow them to sometimes meet three times in a month and then take the month of August off, oh. then you could set it up so that you could have a, essentially a, a, a county government schedule where August is a down month and the three weeks around Christmas and New Year's are down time and, and still get everything done you're already doing now. So that's what we're talking about. I really like that idea. I'll, I'll support that. Yeah. Um, I, I recently had a member complain to me, basically saying, um, why, why does the county council work full time? Um, in a lot of places, county council is a, is a part-time gig. Um, in the past, county council members have, have had other jobs, and this has sort of been their, their part-time gig. Do you think that, that a part-time county council would be more appropriate? Do you think that was, that was appropriate and, and the times have yeah, called I think for something different? We're an $800 million a year operation, you know, and uh, you, you need, and those people are so important for the, take the community um, input on, on every issue and help filter it and so forth that I don't know. I mean, there are, most of them are working more than full-time if they're doing their job now. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a full-time job, uh, I think. I agree with you. I just, I just wanted to, to have somebody think, else argue the point for I do me. think <laughs> it would be better if we had four-year terms because it takes, a, it takes them a year or so, a new member, to actually learn how all, everything works, how the committee structure works with the difference between a resolution and a, and a bill and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And uh, once they've learned that, it would be nice if they were there for another two or three years rather than have to take a chance of starting all over again every two years. Plus, they have to run for office on, you know, six months out of the 24 they're in office, basically. You know? Yeah. I, I don't like the two-year terms. I think that's too short. I also have a, a big issue with, as far as the calendar goes, to go back to that, um, the budget session. 
I, yeah. I think it's I think it's a bad idea to have folks and, and maybe moving them up a month as far as when they enter well, office. Well, they also to should December. adopt a two-year budget because um, they're uh, almost everything is recurring. You yeah, know, they, they they can always deal with a, a new expense they've got to deal with whenever it comes up. But I think they should be on a two-year cycle. The state's on a two-year cycle, and and we should be too. But that would require a charter amendment because the charter requires them to have a a budget every year. Mm. What did you think, um, or do you have any commentary on on the differences you saw between this this past budget session um, and and previous years? Uh, it seemed to take less time this this time than, than the ones I've read before. I've read through the budget committee meetings for um, let's see, uh, some in 2016, most of 2017 and 18, just trying to figure out what was going on and uh, uh, Ricky's style you know was to run way late into the night over and over again and then keep the staff working all weekend and come back with his tweaks and uh, that there's been way too much time in the details I'm told that the Honolulu council is able to get their budget done in about a month uh, every year and their budget is what three or four times as big as ours maybe mm. I don't know maybe more than that there, so it's just a matter of uh, there's so much repeat stuff. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like the nonprofit groups that get grants, we we give out like twelve million dollars in grants every year to various nonprofit groups. Um, if they could be on a two year cycle instead of a one year cycle, they could plan better. They wouldn't have to come down and deal with the county council every year, just every other year, you know. And uh, it, uh, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Do you? Um, there were. There were some some criticisms um, this year regarding transparency of of the budget process, yeah. and um, specifically dealing with with that Exhibit One or Exhibit A that they were referring to, which is the spreadsheet. Yeah. Um, do you think those were valid criticisms at all? Or you know, my biggest criticism was I could never figure out what what department they're going to cover the next time mm. because they use the same agenda. Yeah. For every meeting, you know, and. Uh, they, as far as I know, they never did announce uh, in any public way, except informally. Uh, I'm happy you said that. Which department's <laughs> going to be up the next time? I know? was afraid I was missing something. Yeah. I, I thought, is there some way for me to know what's going to go on next? Because they keep on using the same agenda. So it's actually a huge relief that you didn't know either. No, I didn't know. And uh, But I think they've, they've, uh, they've decided to hire this or, or buy a new software program for next year that should allow it to all be much clearer in terms of its presentation in writing and also uh, clearer about what's going to happen day to day in the hearings. You know. Yeah. I, um, you, you've given me an hour and a half so far. Um, as you mentioned in your, your email, um, we might have to do two podcasts, and I, I, I definitely want to come back and interview you We haven't talked about the water problems. We haven't. Do you want to talk about the water problems? You got, you got time? Give me your thoughts on the water issues. Well, um, let's start with the fact that um, Mahipono needs water to farm, uh, and uh, nobody really disagrees with that. Um, but um, they... Uh, they haven't been willing yet to sit down in any kind of a global f forum where you can get all the interest together and try to work out what should be in their long-term lease. Mm. They're going for a one-year extension again now because the appellate court changed, changed its ruling. Uh, and um, 
what, what really needs to happen, I think, is for all of the part of the county, the Native Hawaiians, the Mahipono people, and uh, everybody that uses the county water system, uh, sit down in a, a mediation with a very good mediator and work out all these differences. Because what's going to happen now is they're about to issue their environmental impact statement for the 30-year water lease, um, A and B and EMI and Mahipono together. That's going to be, I don't know, 1,000 to 2,000 page document, undoubtedly subject to legal challenges by somebody, um, mm. because they almost always are. Um, and that process can be very, you know, litigating the environmental impact statement and its adequacy can take years and cost a lot of money for everybody involved. Um, and then they still have to issue the lease and you fight about the terms of the lease and you can litigate all of that too from the, in front of the natural, you know, the, the Board of Land uh, of, uh, land and Natural Resources. So um, I think it's in everybody's interest to try to sit down together uh, and agree on all this. It's, it's not like we're, you know, it's not like it's a secret about uh, uh, who wants what water, you know. The, the other thing is that uh, you probably know the Board of Water Supply has a temporary investigation group going now to look at um, possibly creating some kind of public utility to take over the EMI distribution system, all the diversions and ditches and everything, and make that a public utility, water utility, rather than have it in private corporate hands, that uh, especially owned by people that don't even really you know, live here. Uh, so um, I, think that is, I think that should probably happen. Not the, not the county run it, but a, a, a special utility district be created that raises the money, buys the stuff, improves it, monitors it, modernizes it, and so forth. It wastes like 25% of the water now in leakage and mm. evaporation, which is just crazy because, you know, there's not, there's not an infinite supply of water. I, that sounds expensive to me, Mike. That's, well, that's but somebody's got to do it. I mean, somebody's got to do it. Mike Pono's going to have to do it, if, uh, and they may not do it as well as, uh, as we need. Yeah. I mean, what I've heard is that the ditches have really gone into disrepair and that, uh, you know, it's... It, Every year that goes by where we don't get in there and fix them up makes it even more costly in the long run. Do you think, do you think mediation, le legitimately, that a compromise could be reached? Oh, yeah, I do. Um, because, like I say, everybody agrees Mike Poro needs enough water to farm. And so if we're going to argue about, well, how much is that, the mediator can help everybody get down to the brass tacks about that. You know? mm. um, Everybody agrees we need to leave a lot of water in the streams. We need to restore the watershed somehow. Uh, you know, I think you could get everybody to agree to all those things faster and cheaper than you ever could if you go through the courts two or three times. Yeah. I, and, and you think that, that a, a mediation would eliminate all the legal challenges? that? Yeah, ideally seen. you would. The end result would be... A, 30-year water lease for Mahipono that everybody's signed off on, including the, you know, BLNR. Yeah. I mean, I got I And then it's done. I would like to see that, too. Um, I, I think you're right. Um, you think that's going to happen? Well, it isn't happening yet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's another thing that the mayor, you know, he says we're going to collaborate on everything, but 
I haven't I haven't seen him taking the lead on this yet either. You know, he's the natural guy to convene everybody, at yeah. least everybody on Maui. I mean, that's our our structure. Our county's structured with a, a strong executive, um, so it would make sense. But we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. You think there's going to be a challenge for the mayor when he seeks re-election? Oh, it's, I think it's way too early to say. He's got three years away yet. You know? I don't know. I thought maybe you might know something. I don't know. That's, no. That's, <laughs> there are rumors swirling. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe you. No. Have, have people approached you about office yet? No. No, and I would be quick to tell them no way, you know. Okay. It's too hard a job. I mean, I, 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 I spend, I don't know, six or seven hours a day on average now working on this stuff. But if I was on an elected office, I'd have to spend 12 hours a day on it. I just, I just want to do that. Yeah. I think you're smart. I think you're, <laughs> you're, you're too smart to run for mayor. That's <laughs> I, um, I, I still want to have you on for another uh, interview a little bit down the line. But for now, um, the way that I like to sort of wind down the interviews um, is I like to ask a few questions that I ask to the same uh, same set of questions to everybody that I interview. Um, so I'm going to give you my, my cool down questions. Uh, first off, what book would you recommend? Well, I think the most dramatic book that I uh, uh, fit, recently finished is The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wells Wallace, or Wallace Wells, I can't remember which way the words go, about the Likely effect of uh, you know, global warming, global heating. But I'll show you the book I'm reading right now, which is actually a very interesting book about the economics of Hawaii. All right. Should I come <laughs> with you? No, I, it's right here. All right. We're um, just to, to fill the space, Michael got up to grab his book. Oh. That's just out this year. Hawaii. Eight hundred years of political and economic change by Sumner Lacroix. Yeah, he was one of the panelists at the uh, your your business. What do you call it? The uh, the HSAC. No, no, the your uh, the, the Maui uh, business group. Uh, I forget what Chamber of Commerce. Chamber of Commerce lunch that they had down in Wailea. Uh, a couple months ago. He was one of the panelists there. That's when I found out he'd written this book because he mentioned it. Very cool. And, and what is um, what are you learning from this one so far? Well, he... Um, I mean, I'm actually, I'm, as you can tell, I'm that's only a, about a quarter of the way through it. But uh, That's a great chapter title, Guns, Germs, and Sandalwood. Yeah. <laughs> he says that the... Um, there's two there's two long-term historic trends here that we are still uh, being influenced by. One is the centralization of the Hawaiian kingdom that happened uh, pretty much before the Europeans even got here. Uh, and then this, the um, which ended up in a state control of the... Of, we have very little local control in Hawaii compared to almost any other state in the country. The state yeah. has... State runs the school system. The state runs the court system. You know, uh, the state controls all the sales taxes and all the income taxes. And so uh, it's very centralized compared to most states. 
Normally, I mean, I think Maui ought to have its own school board and its own school district. But yeah, I was um, that, that was probably, actually one of the things that surprised me the most when I moved here yeah. that um, that your school district is is just one department of education for every island. But he says we've really inherited that from the Hawaiian Kingdom, and it's it's just a persistent form of government here. The other thing is that the the island economy itself kind of forces that kind of. Uh, centralization, but with local control on some things, <laughs> you know. So um, that, that's what I've got out of this so far. That sounds really fascinating. The other thing he makes a point about, and, and I've, I thought I was up to speed on all of the archaeology of uh, prehistory of the Hawaiian Islands, but he cites the m- most recent research saying that the Polynesians probably didn't start uh, living uh, in the Hawaiian Islands until middle of the 13th century, 1260, 1250 or so. And they were only, had been here only 500 years when the Europeans showed up, instead of the 1,000 to 1,500 years that they've always said. So was it that they, that they hadn't been here, or they just weren't occupying here? No, they hadn't been here yet. I mean, oh. they, they came from the Marqueses first, but the Marqueses weren't settled until about 11 to 1200. And so... The Marqueses weren't capable of supplying colonialists to, to you know, the Hawaiian Islands until about then, according to all the most recent stuff he cites. So, I gotta get that book. That sounds <laughs> super interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you do you read mostly nonfiction? Yeah, yeah. I'm too old to read fiction. <laughs> <laughs> What does age have to do with it? Oh, because I think uh, I'm more interested in what uh, what can I do immediately uh, to affect things while I'm still around. Uh, another book over there on my uh, table is uh, uh, is about Hawaiian water law, because um, I'm not sure that uh, Mahipono shouldn't be charged for the water they take out of their own land, because the water is a public trust. Uh, under the 78 constitution of the state and it's never really been tested as to how much control the state can exercise over its public trust and that includes all the water surface water groundwater uh, storm water everything wow hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that these is are really uh, interesting <laughs> yeah have have you thought about um, sort of getting into any legal challenges there or, or testing those waters? No, no, for... my job is, is if, 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 there's, uh, if there's some useful litigation that Maui Tomorrow could take part in that would help uh, fix the water situation using these doctrines, my job would be to go raise money to hire the lawyers, not to be the lawyer. Now, I, don't, I don't have a Hawaii license. Yeah. And it, you really have to, this is complicated stuff, Hawaii water law, you know, so. And unique to Hawaii. It's different because of the way the state constitution was written in 1978. There's really no other state in the country that has the kind of uh, public trust doctrine that we do. Huh. That's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> there are questions there that I wish I knew what to ask, but, but huh. I'm going to have to, to get back to you. Because, I mean, what, what, what is so unique about it? I guess let's start there. That there's no private ownership of water. Yeah. That's... <laughs> it's all owned by the state. Huh. Yeah, let me, um, let me do some research on, on <laughs> riparian law, and, um, and we'll, get, <laughs> yeah. we'll get into water next time. 
Um, all right, question number two. What is guaranteed to make you smile? What sparks joy for you? Oh, you know, uh, I like to see uh, uh, political effects. I like my puppy, you know, <laughs> my grandkids, you know. How many grandkids do you have, Mike? Two. Two. How many, how many kid kids? Well, we, between us, we have four kids in Portland and two grandkids. Uh, one daughter just moved to Seattle to go to grad school at the University of Washington. But she'll probably go back to Portland eventually. Do you miss Oregon? Do you go back frequently? Well, I miss it, but we don't go back too frequently just because I'm so tired of traveling. But um, we go back two or three times a year, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, so your puppy and your grandkids. That's a, that's a solid answer for, <laughs> for what makes you smile. Um, what goal do you have that you haven't achieved yet? This damn book. This damn book. <laughs> I've been working on it for five or six years already, so it's, I want to get it done. Um, I'm going to add a question um, that I haven't asked before, which is what is guaranteed to get you fired up? Like really just get your blood boiling. It's the, the antithesis of the what makes you smile. Property tax reform. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know, traditionally, I, I just want to throw this out there. The, the realtors, um, traditionally, we, we like to keep property taxes quite low. Yeah, well, you can um, have low. I want to lower them for everybody that lives here. I'm only going to raise them on people that don't live here. I'm going to work out a more detailed thought before I respond to that. Um, I like at least half of that statement. That's <laughs> um, all right. And, the, uh, and I'm not sure if I, if I dislike the other half. I'm not sure yet. Uh, let, me, let me think about yeah. it because um, the, it's that balance. Because I understand the need for taxation. Um, we, we ask a yeah, lot. Yeah, we can't get their income, and we can't get the sales tax. So yeah. what else are we going to do? And, and we ask a lot from our county, and our, our county delivers a lot. I mean, as, as far as, um, you know, I'm, I lean pretty far left, so I don't really mind paying taxes that much as long as I'm getting a benefit from it. Um, I, I do feel like Maui County does a good job of, of assisting its people with the, the yeah. money that it collects. Well, you know, the truth is that we, if, if Maui had done this correctly, then all of the big developments, all the hotels and resorts, all the condos that are short-term rentals, all the wealthy second homes, they would have had to have either built homes for their workers or funded homes for their workers as we went along. And we wouldn't have a workers' uh, housing shortage now. Which so we're just playing catch-up now. With, we, we have to, the, only, the only place the county can get money is out of the, the wealthiest property owners here, the resorts, uh, the short-term rental owners, and the second homes. And they should have been paying more all along, and now they're going to have to pay more for a while to we get the housing built and the roads built we need. You know? mm. That's the big picture. And my, uh, my final question for you, Mr. Michael Williams, um, what piece of advice would you give to anyone listening? Uh, well, just make sure your facts are straight <laughs> before you express an opinion about something. That is solid advice. <laughs> I like it. I, I should I should take more of that. Yeah, advice. I should. I I try not to express an opinion about something that I don't know uh, the facts about. 
you're much better off to say you don't know and then go try to find out. I like it. Um, well, Michael Williams, you are, you're awesome. You're, you're, you're a statesman. You're, you're what I, I um, hopefully someday I'm, I'm sitting in my beautiful, uh, on my beautiful patio overlooking the island, uh, much like you are. And hopefully I have an adorable puppy at that time as well. Um, I have an adorable wife too. And, and I'm, <laughs> I haven't met your wife yet. Um, and I, I, think she's I here now. and, uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for everything that you've been doing. Thank you for, for your long career. And I, I hope you, you keep on going and, uh, and keep on helping the people of Maui. I appreciate your time. All thank right. You. Thank you.